I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, is working less a secret to abundance? For 15 years, anthropologist James Sussman lived in the Kalahari Desert with some of the last remaining hunter-gatherers in the world. As he got to know them, they started asking questions. Questions about the world he came from, a world that seemed to them like a pretty strange place. Why, they asked, did bosses who sat around in air-conditioned offices make more money than the young men who dug ditches in the hot sun? Why did people keep going to work even after they'd been paid? Why not take some time off for good behavior? Come to think of it, why was everyone working so hard in the first place? The more time James spent in the Kalahari, the harder it was for him to come up with good answers, or at least answers that weren't at odds with his evolving thinking about the nature of work and the necessity of leisure. The men and women living in the Kalahari Desert are the closest analog we have to our ancient ancestors, the ones who walked the earth during the first 290,000 years of human history. Until the 1960s, anthropologists believed these hunter-gatherers led short, brutally difficult lives. Only through incremental advancements in technology, the thinking went, were they able to secure greater wealth, tranquility, and free time. But when anthropologists started studying the world's remaining hunter-gatherer societies, they came to a striking conclusion. Their lives weren't nearly as bad as everybody thought. The group James lived with only spent 15 hours a week working, foraging, going out on food quests. Most of their time was consumed by leisure. They met their needs, and then they put their feet up. It was no wonder they had so many questions about the working world. It was completely at odds with their own. James was about to see that firsthand. After two and a half decades in the desert, he moved to England and took a job running public affairs for the diamond mining behemoth De Beers. He worked crushing hours, spent more time with his colleagues and his family, obsessed over the size of his bonus. In other words, he was a typical white-collar laborer. He didn't feel productive or useful or happy. He felt miserable. So miserable, in fact, that he marched out of his office one day and went straight back to the Kalahari. The sharp contrast between what James saw in the boardroom and what he saw out on the desert plains proved to be excellent fodder for his new book, Work, A Deep History from the Stone Age to the Age of Robots. As the name suggests, it's a sweeping survey of why we work. Along the way, James argues that a lot of our assumptions about human nature are just plain wrong. Our contemporary preoccupation with scarcity, the motivating fear that we won't be able to put food on the table or pay next month's rent or retire comfortably was noticeably absent for much of human history. Likewise, our obsession with hard work appears to be a pretty recent development. Yes, our homo sapien ancestors worked hard, but they didn't work as incessantly as we do now. Too incessantly, James argues. After 300,000 years, we find ourselves at an inflection point. Securing food was once the defining object of human work. Now, we produce such staggering quantities of it that as much ends up in landfills as ends up in our bellies. We are more productive than ever thanks to our ruthless exploitation of fossil fuels, but that productivity brings with it tremendous environmental costs, costs that could have catastrophic consequences. On a personal level, many of us can't stop wondering, am I contributing to society? Is my job meaningful? Because if it isn't, then why am I working so darn hard? Here to talk through those questions with James is one of the best thinkers we have on the subject of work, 
Adam Grant. As you probably know, Adam is an organizational psychologist at Wharton, where he's been the school's top-rated professor for seven years running. He's written several brilliant bestsellers, including Originals, Give and Take, and most recently, Think Again. And he's also one of our beloved curators here at the Next Big Idea Club. So without further ado, Adam, James, get to work. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. James, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a long time coming. I feel like I know you from all our emails and from reading your brilliant book. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) I have to say that I had a really strange reaction to your book, which was, I've been saying for years that the, the thought leader conversation about work is, well, for a long time, it was dominated by economists. And now we finally have lots of psychologists into it. And we desperately need anthropologists. Yeah, brilliant. And after reading work, I think I've understated the case. You've made it very clear that we should all be listening to and learning from not only anthropologists, but especially from you. I know I wrote you at some point that I've been studying work my whole career. It's two decades now, and I cannot remember the last time I learned so much about it in one sitting and in one book, and I just could not put it down. So congratulations. Thank you. Well, you're pinking me up in this miserable light. It's probably a good thing that it's so dark and gloomy here and blighty. Can't see my blushes. Mission accomplished. <laughs> you know, I think I've, I've also been waiting for someone to write a real history of work. And you went back so much further than I ever imagined that would go. So I guess the, the place I want to start is with the first insight that really blew my mind in this book, which is I thought one of the major points of the Industrial Revolution was that we could automate a lot of work and we would work less. Hmm. And you say, "Mm, no, not so much. In fact, our hunter-gatherer ancestors actually worked substantially less than we do. Is this really true? Look, I can't speak for all our hunter-gatherer ancestors for all time, but I can really look at only our contemporary hunter-gatherers and say, you know, work creates us. The way we work, the way we make a living, hunting and gathering seems to produce some very distinctive social forms as a way of making a living. And those social forms seem to be fairly consistent and they seem to prioritize meeting short-term needs, not worrying a great deal about the future, not being hostage to the future. That's really what it is. People, don't one reviewer described it as the Sunday scaries. And he was talking about you know, his feeling on the weekend that he could never relax, that he always felt that there was something to do. Whereas Junglasi definitely were able to relax once they had their needs met. That didn't mean they were ever idle. It didn't mean that they always did the work that needed to be done. But I think in all instances, they organized their economies that once their basic material needs were met, they took the business of leisure quite seriously. I I think our hunter-gatherers had something on us. And certainly for me, it's a question that I've asked, why do we we have this great abundance? Why are we not at least all doing work we love, at the very least, you know, even if not working less? I know that we're going to dig into your hunter-gatherer life and research as an anthropologist, but you also lived a corporate life. What was that? It's a, a very long story of how I got in there, but 
strangely, through my life as an anthropologist, I ended up taking on a fairly senior role at De Beers, of all things. I went from working with a society where they found a certain amount of um, affluence without any kind of material abundance and wealth to uh, working in a business which was based really on, you know, smoke and mirrors of of wealth. And I got in there, I got involved with them, started off as a, you know, to develop their community and sustainability and environmental strategies and policies because they were concerned about being accused of um, doing all sorts of terrible things. The diamond business does not have the best reputation and they wanted to be best in class, as they said. And I got there and then subsequently I ended up sort of ascending the greasy ladder rather quickly and I ended up as director of global head of public affairs, so running government relations, stakeholder relations, and a whole series of other functions and ended up leaving in 2013, somewhat happily. But uh, I view it now as my seven years of fieldwork in the corporate world. And actually, it was a very valuable counter-perspective to the world of Zhongwasi. And I think that part of the reason I wrote this book, Work, was it's the progeny of these two very different perspectives and experiences, for want of a better word, a fieldworker. James, that goes to one of the things that I've been most curious about, which is you've not only studied these hunter-gatherers in Namibia and Botswana, you've lived with them, you've worked with them. Have you become more like them? How has, how has this philosophy of work changed your own ethos? I mean, when I started working with them, when we went hunting, we did so illegally on land that had been taken from them. We were effectively poachers. We were hiding from farmers with guns and, you know, conservation <laughs> officials and all sorts of things. And same with gathering, you know, gathering food in the desert. Actually, their land had all been whipped away and they'd been forced into our system of labor in a very brutal sense. They'd been like, right, now you're going to be farm laborers. And so part of the reason I got into this, part of this, this different, the reason I ex- got such a sense of this difference was not through living with them as absolutely pristine hunter-gatherers, but rather through living amongst people who are trying to negotiate their way into our kind of economy based on reward and labor, and really at the absolute lowest run. And their absolute bewilderment and confusion, and also the kind of, you know, the incredibly racist stereotypes it produced from the white farmers, you know, who tell me, oh, the Bushmen are lazy. And it was all to do with this sort of ideas about work falling in the cavern between two very fundamental ways of engaging with the economic world. And the truth is now that most Junwasi and many other San, I mean, Junwasi is one group of these Kalahari hunter-gatherers, because of their engagement with this economy, they are, in many instances, what you call a slummified underclass. Their engagement in our world has not been a pleasant experience. And so what impact has that on, had on you then? Uh, you know, if you think about the, the James Sussman who existed before, before going into the hunter-gatherer world and the one who came out, how did your own attitudes and behaviors around work change? I don't think they changed hugely, I'll be honest with you. I think I always had a kind of leisured streak within me. In my family, my brother was the notoriously hard worker, and I was told I always got by on trying to be charming and, and articulate <laughs> rather than putting in the effort. But look, anthropology is a very strange experience. When most of us travel, we go to places and we often have instinctive reactions to them. There's certainly many cities on earth and countries I've been to where I just haven't felt naturally at home. I actually quite look forward to going back to my home 
when I got into the Kalahari Desert, I felt very much at home. And with the individuals, we saw each other and we understood each other. I mean, these are some of the most important human relationships of my life. I literally have fathers, uncles, my children are named after them because in the Xinhua world, your name determines your relationship. So my son is called Kakei, for example, which is my name father's name. And it means my name father becomes his grandfather and they treat each other in certain ways. I remain very much locked in there. And this now is the longest period I haven't been to see them. And courtesy of COVID, and I'm really quite worried about whether I'll get a chance to go even this year. It's changed me profoundly. Um, and it's also, in maybe some ways, helped me find who I am. And as I discovered when I did my stint in the corporate world, <laughs> I kind of beat a hasty retreat after seven years back to a world I'm more comfortable with. How many hours a week do you work now? It's interesting. It depends on how you define work. I'm a single father, so. Part of my decision for becoming a writer full-time really is to be there for my children. I also swore after my seven years of corporate life and commuting, um, I calculated, I commuted four hours a day to <sighs> London and back. And I swore I'm going to play sport every day. So up until COVID again, I'd make sure I played sport every day. But then I'm a writer and I do various odd projects. I actually set up a consultancy organization when I left De Beers. And I've done nothing with it other than human rights work. <laughs> so in reality, I think I probably do about two or three good hours work a day. But as you know, when you're writing, your brain is always going. So when I'm going through the supermarket, when I'm going to the squash courts, when I'm um, looking after my children, my mind is continuously motoring through an idea, a way of saying something, a way of thinking about something. So writing, writing never lets you off, really, does it? No, it doesn't. And it, I guess that leads me to the question of what what do the hunter-gatherers of the, the Kalahari that you've gotten to know, what do they make of the fact that you not only work more than they do, but you've written a whole book about work? Do they Do they think that's even a worthwhile pursuit? They actually don't know I've written a book about work because I was so damn busy writing it. Um, and I found it quite hard to tell them. And I actually, I only was able to visit them once I'd finished it. And they thought it sounded like an extremely boring subject. Work for them, you know, has very negative connotations now because work is something that you generally do for, you know, the ranchers who've taken their land. And often work is something which doesn't come with pay. So they thought it was vaguely interesting. You know, one of the beauties of this relationship is we've been cheerfully mystified by one another for 30 odd years now. And it's a very good way to be. We're intrigued and sympathetic and confused by each other. Cheerfully mystified. That's a, yes. I think that's a great place to be. It's a, a delightful way of capturing openness to a very foreign culture and probably an unfamiliar world. I think that one of the things your your research has really led me to think and rethink a lot about is the purpose of work in our lives. Talk to me a little bit about how your your data, your studies, your observations, and your experiences have, have shifted your thinking about what work means in society. It's, it's interesting. I mean, when I started, I had this idea of something around a comparison between how the Zhenghuasi organize their work and life and the economic ideas around it and how we do. And it turned into something of a wormhole. 
because work is one of these words that we all use, and we all have a very intuitive sense of what it means. We use it in lots of different contexts, very cleverly and very quickly. We work at relationships, we work at sports, we work at our jobs, we work at learning. But when you try and pin down what it means, it suddenly reveals this extraordinary slipperiness. And what it seems to me is, you know, there's certainly two things in work. One is the very fundamental thing of meeting our basic needs. But then the rest of it is something far more flexible. One person's work is another person's leisure. So Genoasi, for example, when the elephant hunters come from Europe and America to blow away innocent jumbos, um, the Genoasi are sort of, you know, they cannot understand. And then the Genoasi know that, you know, this hunting and by foreigners, is what sustains their community organization and allows them to effectively live outside the mainstream economy in many respects. But they mystified why these people pay such huge amounts of money to kill an animal that's too big to eat, why they pay such a huge amount of money to do this when they say, this is work. This is hard and dangerous work. Why do they work all year at another job to come and do this hard and dangerous work? Much of what we do for pleasure is actually work. I cook for pleasure. I fish for pleasure. I pay money to go fishing. I can't afford to go fishing most of the time. So these inversions of what is work and not work are actually often context-based. And that, again, raises a whole series of questions of why are we doing certain kinds of work? So for me, it keeps boiled down to that question, when our basic needs are met, or when we are collectively resourced to meet everybody's basic needs, why aren't we creating an environment that enables people to do the work they love rather than desperately try and learn to love the work that they find and have to do. That for me is, I suppose, the crux of it. You know, we have this extraordinary creativity within us, but we're instead funneling people into doing really quite miserable things <laughs> most of the time. I'm inclined to agree with you. And in some ways, this is sort of the holy grail of, of my field of organizational psychology is to say, what can we do to design work that, that people find motivating and meaningful and enjoyable. And some of the pushback I've gotten over the years, uh, including from my own sister, <laughs> is to say, look, not everyone needs to have a calling, right? It's, it's okay to have a job or to have a career. And I, when I've looked at the data, it does seem to be true if you look at Amy Resneski's research, for example, that people who see their work as a calling on average are happier in life, but they also struggle more with questions of work-life balance. And it's really left me questioning whether we should expect everyone to love their work or whether, in fact, we should try to set an upper bound so that people don't work 80 or 90 hours in a job that they hate, but still make it okay to have a job. And it sounds like you're pushing against that. Well, no, I think, I think, I think it's great to have a job. I think what I'd like to see is for people to really have that choice. So, Again, you know, the world is full of very different people. There's some very individualistic go-getters who want to shape their own destiny and are very difficult to compartmentalize into an institutional space. It's probably one of the reasons why I wasn't that brilliant in the corporate environment. <laughs> but there are also certainly loads of people there who like the structure, they like the rules, they like the they found that society within it because that is really where our society has evolved, where 200 years ago, our identity was based on shared geography, shared uh, kinship often, shared religious practices, shared local identity. In cities, it's based on shared work. So it offers us a certain amount of structure. And 
So in a sense where we say people are saying, well, some people do like jobs. Yes, people like identities and a sense of belonging and being. That doesn't need to come from a job. For the moment, it does. But again, I think that's a hangover of the way we're organizing our economy. I also have extraordinary confidence that people find things to do when they don't have something to do. And that's absolutely everybody. You know, for many of us, it's just easy to say, oh, I'll just go and do my job. I don't have to think about it. But actually, you know, take away a job from somebody and put them in a context where they have choices. Um, then you find that they almost always do something with it. So we see that with the experiments with universal basic income. As long as people have choices, they do it. When they don't have choices, being without a job, unemployment is a miserable thing. It's an isolating, hideous thing. But when you have choices, it's different. And this is why I keep going back to imagine if our economy was organized in just completely different conceptual grounds. Imagine if we could sort of tear it apart, take away the institutions that everybody's expected to work in certain ways, and created institutions which encouraged everybody to work. It allowed some people, if they were genuine idlers, to actually idle. You know, there's lots of people who make a living playing computer games online now. Let them, in a sense, do it. I imagine that in a nurturing space, you can, people will do wonderful things, I think. I've got to say, I think James is totally right. We accept that most everyone has to work, like it or not, for a big chunk of their lives. And most of us never stop to ask, why is it this way? But not Adam Grant. After the break, he asked James how we got here. And if you think the answer is the Industrial Revolution, you're in for a surprise. Stick around. We'll be right back. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I want to know how we got here. You you said this was a hangover a bit, our attitudes toward work. And I think you you really shattered one of my assumptions, another one of my assumptions in, in pointing out that what I thought was caused by the Industrial Revolution actually traces much, much further back to the Agricultural Revolution. I guess I've assumed for a long time that you know, the, the attitudes we have about work defining us, about productivity being a measure of our worth, that those really grew out of the, you know, the manufacturing economy where we wanted to figure out That's how to right. be as efficient as possible. And, and you say, yeah. no, 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 this isn't, this isn't two, 300 years back. This goes back 10,000 years. And so you get the agricultural revolution coming. We get the advent of farming. Why is that so pivotal in making work central to our lives and our identities? Firstly, it's because you started getting surpluses. The surplus energy created the creative space for a whole series of another different kind of roles, and ultimately, the birth of cities. Every city, almost instantly, from the very first ones, you see this instant efflorescence of different professions, skills, artisanship. And within those cities as well, you also see in the record the extent to which these things became intimate form of identity for people. So you had, for example, Rome was organized around trade guilds where people married in 
Um, we see, of course, in places like India, it's absolutely institutionalized in the caste system, where your job, you are born into your job. And of course, we saw that historically with uh, many of the Western European populations too. So hence the names like Smith and Farrier and so on. So as soon as you got into cities, work became a matter of identity. And part of it is a fundamental thing. So when two people are working in a space, whether they're a cleaner, whether they're a butcher, whether they're a shoemaker, it creates this kind of community of experience. And that produces a forge for identity. And, you know, and this is why, again, you see in all through history, the emergence of similar categories of people, religious professionals, scribe professionals, of course, soldiers who specialize in specific forms of work. Well, this raises a few questions for me that I, I think are interesting as we start to chart the future of work. One of which is there's, if, if we go in the direction that you're mapping out for us, which is to give people a choice and say, you know, if, if you prefer to work 15 hours a week and subsist on that, we want to free up your time to do that. It would make it awfully difficult to accomplish great things. Let's take the pandemic of the past year. I don't think we'd have COVID vaccines if people were working 15 hours a week. Is your vision that there are certain organizations, certain occupations, certain jobs where people will naturally be drawn by the meaning to, to work more? Absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt. I'm, I mean, we both live, I suppose Cambridge is a slightly more amplified town in that sense. But, you know, part of the reason I live here and actually is that I'm in a town where very few people are doing the work for anything but the love of it. And they're all really good at it and they're all really motivated. I have always, in my sort of esoteric world of academia, I've always engaged with people who've got on and done the important work. And I think part of the problem is, is we get some of the most energetic, brainy, wonderful people who just through need, just through need or convention or the way our economy incentivizes things, um, you end up with these great, you know, there was a nameless anthropology student who was absolutely brilliant in my year and was destined to do great things, has ended up as a corporate lawyer, very good corporate lawyer, but he was incentivized by the system effectively to do one kind of role, whereas he would have been an absolutely wonderful anthropologist. And I suspect it's something he's probably always regretted. I mean, we're not, we're not as in touch. So I tend to be optimistic. And I think it's an experiment worth doing. That's Again, my other thing is we don't know the answers. Uh, you know, I don't really have a vision for the future. I have a vision for experimenting and learning. And, you know, it's partially my big bugbears. Like people are being asked, I end up in a million conferences. Well, what's the future going to be like? I'm, I have no idea. What should it be? I have no idea. But what I'd really like to do is say, these are problems we can identify. Let's experiment. Let's try something big like universal basic income, a four-day week. Or, as we did in the last year, a large-scale experiment in flexible working. Let's see what happens, and let's take what we learn from it. Let's call it an experiment. Instead, we have this political system at the moment that we keep wanting people to come with ready-made answers, and when those ready-made answers obviously don't work, we, we sit there and go, well, well, you're out now. You know, I'd love, as I was saying in an interview with a Spanish paper yesterday, I was like, I, I think I might start the let's experiment and check stuff out party. <laughs> you know, and I think that we really are at a point of prosperity where we do have the wiggle room to experiment. It is remarkable how many of the principles I was trying to capture and think again are are played out in your vision of the future of work. And one of the things that I, I found myself wondering as I was reflecting on 
you know, you take this um, this long view of the past and you use it, I think, to hold up a mirror to the present and say, what what kind of future do we want to build? Uh, it seems like part of that vision is for a lot of people, the the role of work in meaning and identity could shrink. And, you know, I think that there's a part of me that really likes that. There's a part of me that worries. I think about some of the evidence, for example, that when people retire, they show a couple of, of negative responses, right? Sometimes they lose a sense of structure and community. Sometimes they lose meaning. Sometimes their cognitive ability starts to decline. I think Freud was wrong about almost everything. <laughs> but one of the things he got right was that the two great joys in life were to, to work and to love. And so if you shrink the role of work, uh, does, you know, does family become the dominant source of meaning? And where to get people, where do people get their social capital? Where does the sense of status, the sense of worth come from? Humans have always had structures. And I tend to think people will have that. I think part of the problem is, is that our society effectively abandons people when they're retired. And again, this is not something that happens typically in, you know, Jinwasi world, for example, or even actually in the agricultural societies that preceded the, you know, retirement. So that's an industrial revolution concept. You know, and as a farmer, you worked effectively until you dropped, or you did whatever you could, performed whatever role um, you could to maintain your functionality within the community. And in the Zhenhua world, old people, everybody looked forward to retirement. They got to hang out with children and tell stories. So I think, again, it's a kind of structural thing. All change requires adjustment and learning. All change is a little bit painful. And that's why we're instinctively fearful of it. You know, we're this extraordinarily adaptable species, but we're incredibly intransigent. You know, we hang on to habits, which we know are bad for us. And I'm speaking as somebody who, you know, I blame the Zhenglasi, but I smoked for a long time. We hang on to habits and we try and justify them. We don't go back and, dare I use this word, think again about them. We'd rather try and organize our facts and experiences around them society-wise, we can do that as well. We don't have to organize retirement the way we do now. And for example, it was a really encouraging thing. My ears tweaked when it happened. Early on in the pandemic um, in Britain, when it was uncertain what this virus was going to be like and what our medical capabilities were going to be, there was the sudden, what they called using the old war analogy, it was men and women, of course, but they called it the dad's army of doctors. All these retired doctors who were desperate to get back in on the thing. And I think people do want to do stuff and they want the opportunity. And I, I agree, you know, one of the, my real bugbears is actually mandatory retirement, I think is a terrible thing. This is where I, you know, keep going back to our level of productivity. You know, just purely, we can, we have brains to automate so much of the dull stuff that actually we should be indulging people who want to work till they're 126, if that's what they wish to do. But we should also be indulging people who, who want to go and windsurf for the rest of their life. We are productive enough to do that. And I think we'll all be doing ourselves a favor because actually in doing that, I think people will do less. And my guess is be a little bit happier and probably a little less fraught. Maybe their total output will be lower per person or per capita, but I think the value, the quality, the creativity will will probably make up for that in a lot of settings. And I think this goes to one of the most important points that you make in the book, which is that if we look at the agricultural revolution 10,000 years ago as an inflection Absolutely. point, that we're at another one right now, and that this might be the most important one since 10,000 years ago. Thank <laughs> you.
From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Welcome back to The Next Big Idea. 10,000 years ago, the agricultural revolution brought on the first inflection point in our relationship to work. Another revolution, this time industrial, brought about the second. In work, James argues that we're now headed for a third inflection point, one that's as important as any other in human history. Why is now a critical period as opposed to earlier decades? And then what happens if we don't rethink work now? I'm always aware of the sort of tyranny of the moment. One always can, you know, is at risk of overemphasizing the importance of my particular lifetime. But I do think, you know, when I talk about this being an important moment, this moment began with the Industrial Revolution, and it is still going. If you imagine the speed it up in geological time, this is the car going slowly over the cliff, and we're sort of just tipping there. But that's journey began 250 years ago when we started exploiting fossil fuels. And through that energy surge, being able to do vast quantities of work in the raw physical sense, that was it. Before then, all the work we had to do was to get the energy we needed to power our bodies or the animals' bodies. Suddenly, we were able to exploit these energy resources. And that distorted everything. We made our economies considerably more capitalized. Um, it created this huge surge in energy and intellectual capital and growth as well. So we developed this extraordinary productivity as a result of it. We haven't learned to live with it. And this is, in a sense, something that even with the digital revolution, the computer revolution, you know, our pocket phones and our laptops are capable of doing far more than we often actually use them for. And we're beginning to feel our way into the capacity of what this can do but we're still learning it. We're like a teenager learning to use their body and their strength and their intelligence in a certain way. I mean, that's the first thing. We've had this absolute shift in productivity. And the metaphor I always go back to is just a simple thing. 200 years ago, even in the most sophisticated agricultural civilizations like pre-industrial revolution, Britain, France, Western Europe, and also Northeast United States in the time of Franklin, 80% of people worked the land. 80% of those people, including children, I should add, produced the food they needed to survive. Most of the work they did was to produce the food, to power their bodies, to produce more food. Now, 1.3% of Americans produce so much food that eating too much is a much bigger problem than having too little. So that problem of scarcity has been solved. And that fundamentally changes the basis of what we are working for. That means our work in many ways, the way we're organizing it, is based on secondary expenditures of energy. And that is in itself an extraordinary revolution. And it's one that we haven't learned to get to grips with. Now, as an anthropologist, again, I'm very open-minded about culture. I have no, if there was, for example, no global climate change, I'd probably be considerably more open-minded about keeping things going the way that they are. But at the moment, we, for example, obsess about productivity and employment. You know, it's a fundamental thing. If we keep thinking that, you know, people are layabouts in society, why why do we struggle? Why is it impossible for us to find employment for everybody? Why is this the holy grail of politics, which nobody can ever achieve? 
And when we do find jobs for people, and you know, there's that wonderful new job index in the States about the quality of work index. I can't remember who put it up. I've been digging around in that. But you've seen, again, particularly since 1980 and that, you know, that era, the Drake great decoupling and incidentally the beginning of the great technological, the new technological boom, you've seen a decline in quality, interesting jobs coming on. And I think, you know, this goes to David Graeber's idea of bullshit jobs. And I think there are lots of people who really don't need to be working in a sense. And, you know, and I don't want to speak ill of my former employers, but, you know, the art of success at De Beers HQ, especially in my functions, which were um, corporate affairs, community relations was not actually was persuading the, the board that you were more important than you actually were. And that was really what promotion and life was about in that corporate space. It was people trying to structure meaning. And you notice this very particularly when we went, when I was there, I was, we were caught out in the 2008 crash where, you know, diamond sales plummeted. And I had to end up getting rid of half my team. And across the business, we shared huge numbers of people. And suddenly after that, you actually realized there wasn't a great deal of function around it, that often the way the business was organized, there's a great deal of performativity. We're incredibly efficient when it came to mining. But actually, the way we organized head office was was based on people trying to create their values. Come up, you know, for me, when I look for new staff members, I look for people who are creative enough to come up with new ideas, come to my office with a great new idea, and we'll justify for the budget for it. And I think we just need different ways of structuring that energy. I mean, for me, it's all about how do we make the best use of the extraordinary human capital that exists in the world. And when I say capital, I mean it in the non-monetary sense. I mean in the beautiful creative sense. Yeah. Well, you captured a lot of attention when you wrote your 300,000-year case for the 15-hour work week, uh, which I thought was such a clever framing of... The idea that that actually we could lead lives of leisure and we don't have to work as much as we do. Obviously, the 15-hour week is a bridge too far for a lot of modern workplaces. What's the first experiment you'd love to see people run? Would you be rolling the dice with the four-day work week, with the six-hour work day, uh, with you know completely flexible results-only workplaces? Where do you think we ought to start? You know, For me, an interesting thing over the course of the last year has been the flexible working experiment. Businesses tried it tentatively. Everybody was fiddling around the edges with it before the pandemic struck. And because it was never done at sufficient scale to have any meaning, it always was like, well, it didn't really work. Now we've actually learned. We've learned what has worked with it. We've also learned what hasn't worked with it. But it's because we did this experiment at scale. I'd like to see something happen at scale. A four-day week for me is just an easy, quick one to do. Um, and they're doing this, I've been doing lots of press in Spain this week, and actually they're launching a big state-wide um, experiment in the four-day week with a number of major businesses this week. I'd really be really interested to see how that goes. Um, flexible working, I think we've really crossed a threshold, although that only applies to you know, the small proportion of people who are knowledge workers, in effect. There are many other people who just simply can't have that. But I, I think if I'd been doing, again, my corporate job, and I was spared that four hours of commute a day, which was not only environmentally disastrous, but for my sanity, just terrible. I imagine I might still actually be doing it. So those are small steps to start. I think in terms of the broader economic question, I'm amazed at how few people seem to talk about the book, but I love Galbraith's The Affluent Society from 1958, where he says, how do we make the best use of our affluence? And I'd like to 
see us be fairly brave in experimenting around that. I would love to see a big experiment in universal basic income. And I mean a really big one. Because you can't test this particular thing at the moment in the United States. There's tons of mayors from Stockton to Newark are doing things, you know, and it's, you know, even before Andrew Yang was shouting about it in his bid for the presidency, people were doing, but we've never been able to do the experiment large enough to actually see what it would do. I imagine that is an experiment. For me, the most interesting thing about UBI is that if everybody's basic needs are met, might we create a world where people start doing things for social capital? Like, I wish I didn't have to actually worry about the number of sale receipts I get for my book because I need to pay for my mortgage and so on. I wish I could actually really just worry about how people responded to it. But I think universal basic income attests in that. But yeah, I, I, I would love to see that done. And if there is for me a silver lining for this pandemic, it's pushed many people over the edge of actually recognizing that things like government support is not that bad. In fact, actually, it's essential. And that even if you want to work hard and make your money, maybe circumstances in the world aren't going to enable you. But we are rich and powerful enough these days to actually, nevertheless, make sure everybody can sustain themselves. But yeah, those, those are two things I'd love to see. And they are, as I said, experiments. We've got to embrace them as experiments and then step back if they don't work. So when you've got the opponents saying, you know, universal basic income is going to raise inflation, it's going to create slobs, it's going to, we don't know, you know, we've got to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, James, this has been such a treat to to hear your insights and, and your stories. And actually, I love the way that you encourage us to look to the past for insight and inspiration for the future. I think that's something we could all do more of. It's been fun doing this. And yeah, I look forward to meeting in person one day when we're allowed to actually travel again. This has been the worst book tour ever, I have to say. (laughs) I know the feeling. Although there is something a little bit convenient about never having to leave your home in order to to spread the ideas across the world. Yeah, this this is true. Would you like to hear what James Sussman thinks are the five most important ideas from his book? Download the Next Big Idea app and check out James's book bite. And why stop there? In our app, you'll also find 12-minute audio summaries of groundbreaking new books, Zoom discussions with your favorite authors, and mind-blowing e-courses. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store. If we all work too hard, one of the reasons is that we all get so many emails. But what if we didn't? What if we lived in a world without email? Join me next week for a conversation with computer scientist Cal Newport about his vision for an email-free future. Special thanks to James Sussman and Adam Grant. Maybe Freud was right. Working hard like we do on this show can be a joy, especially if you have a crack team. Our executive producers are Caleb Bissinger and Michael Kovnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound design by Jason Freeman. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.